Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Challenging, thought-provoking, insightful. This is the Ninja Pastor with Sunday's God in Country with Dr. Sean. Hosted by nationally known speaker, Reverend Dr. Sean Michael Greener. Not your typical reverend. Dr. Sean is a proud U.S. military veteran, former law enforcement officer, founder of the internationally regarded executive protection team. Through his riveting national speaking, this ninja pastor tells it like it is. This show is biblically and politically engaged in the battle to save our country with a pedal to the metal with this Sunday's edition of Sundays with Dr. Sean. Buckle up. Here's your host, the author of the critically acclaimed book, Excellence Killed the Church, How Mediocrity is Destroying America, Reverend Dr. Sean, the Ninja Pastor, with today's message. Welcome, 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 and thank you to Mr. Barker. I really appreciate that great introduction every week. What a privilege it is to have one of the world's most famous voices announcing for me every single week. It is indeed an honor. I'm going to get right to it. This is probably going to be the hardest sermon I've ever had to preach, but the title of this sermon is Make the Angels Jealous of the Angels, the Anguish Only God Will Heal. There's a great deal of suffering in this world today, and if you've listened to my speeches or my messages or heard me speak anywhere around the United States, then you know that I make jokes. I do funny stuff sometimes. I use voices and impressions and all that, and sometimes I act just downright silly. You've heard me joke around. You've heard me use humor to make points during many of my messages, but this message will by no means be funny. Today is different. Today is very, very different. Today is the most difficult, emotionally speaking, and maybe perhaps spiritually speaking, message I will ever deliver. It might well be the easiest message for you to ever hear, but maybe it won't be. Maybe it'll be a bitter pill for you to swallow, and I know this. God won't allow me to preach anything else today. I hope that you'll share the link in your social media and your email list and among all your friends. Just send them to drshawngreener.com or the ninjapastor.com, and the links are all there under the Ninja Pastor blog. In the beginning of Romans 9, it reads, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Is it a coincidence that yesterday, while searching for the God-ordained message to deliver tonight, I went to this passage without thought or effort? Great friends even mentioned this topic to me as something that was on their minds lately. Beth Moore, great speaker and conference leader and phenomenal writer, she's been quoted as saying, everything in us that cries out in resistance to an end comes from an innate sense that we are meant to be be without one. We are meant to be without an end. We were never meant to die. It wasn't in God's plan in the garden for us ever to know death. And we've been fighting death and the fear of death ever since. Death in us, yes, absolutely. We've been fighting that. All of us are fearful of that. All of us struggle with that. We don't want that. Uh, But some are having trouble getting in through the link for you. Thank you for your patience. Let's just see here. We want everybody that wants to listen. Last week, I'll take this opportunity. Last week was our largest number of listeners around the world. We had 79,000 
last week a jump of almost 10,000 people. I don't know how to act, all these people. So all those people sharing and all of that, I hope that you share and and uh, tell all your friends this is one that I don't think you want to miss. There we go. Just republish the link so it should be all good. But, you know, we were never meant to die. It wasn't in God's plan in the garden. The garden was perfect. We were never to know death. Death was a non-existent thing. The animals didn't die. The plants didn't die. Nothing died. Everything lived beautifully on and on. There was no sense of shortening of time of here on life, here on earth. No shortening of life. No sense of that. Because death didn't exist. Sickness didn't exist. Sorrow didn't exist. We're afraid of death for ourselves, sure. Absolutely. But you know, I think the biggest thing that we're afraid of is the death of those we love. We don't like to say goodbye. Remember what she said, everything in us that cries out resistance to an end comes from an innate sense that we weren't meant to be without one. We were, we were meant to be without one. We were never supposed to die. Romans 9, 1-26, I'll read some of it. I am speaking the truth, this is from the complete Jewish Bible, as one who belongs to the Messiah, I do not lie, and also bearing... Witness is my conscience, governed by Ruach HaKodesh, which is Hebrew for the Holy Spirit. My grief is so great, the pain in my heart so constant, that I could wish myself actually under God's curse and separated from the Messiah. If it would help my brothers, my own flesh and blood, the people of Israel, they were made God's children. The Shekinah has been with them. The covenants are theirs. Likewise, the giving of the Torah, the temple service, and the promises, the patriarchs are theirs. And from them, as far as his physical descent is concerned, came the Messiah, who is over all. Praise be Adonai forever. Amen. But the present condition of Israel, this is in verse 6, does not mean that the word of God has failed, for not everyone from Israel is truly part of Israel. Indeed, not all of the descendants are seeds of Abraham which is Abraham, rather, what is to be called your seed will be in Yitzhak. In other words, it is not the physical children who are the children of God, but the children of promise refers to those who are considered seed. For this is what the promise said. At the time set, I will come. By the way, welcome to all the folks in chat. We're so glad to have you. At the time set, I will come, and Sarah will have a son, and even more to the point is the case of Rivka. For both her children were conceived in a single act with Yitzhak, our father. And before they were born, before they had done anything at all, either good or bad, so that God's plan might remain a matter of his sovereign choice, not dependent on what they did, but on God who does the calling. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And this accords with where it is written, Yaakov I loved, but Esau I hated. So are we to say, is this unjust for God to do this? Heaven forbid, for Moshe or Moses says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will pity whom I have pity. Thus it doesn't depend on human desires or efforts, but on God who 
has mercy. For the Tanakh says to the Pharaoh, says to Pharaoh, it is for this very reason that I raised you up, that so that in connection with you I might demonstrate my power, so that my name might be known throughout the world. So then he has mercy on whom he wants, and he hardens whom he wants. But you will say to me, then why does he still find fault with us after all? Who resists his will? Who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Will what his form say to him? Who formed it? Why did you make me this way? Or has the potter no right to make any given lump of clay this pot for honorable use and that one for dishonorable? Now what if God, even though he was quite willing to demonstrate his anger and make known his power, patiently put up with people who deserved punishment and were ripe for destruction? I want you to think about the threads that connect the sadness we all experience. Think about human stories begin, folks. Think about human stories. Think about how they end, how they start and how they end. I want you to think it through. I was thinking yesterday where I do my best thinking, walking my sweet but aging and ailing best buddy, Buckeye. I was thinking about how I've been really beating myself up lately about my life, feeling like a failure, like I failed my potential. So many physical and neurological hurdles now. So many self-made failures to thrive in my life. So many poor performances in my own story, and I've come to this conclusion. I'm not confident that I've used my potential properly. I'm not confident that I've used my potential fully. I'm not confident that I've done with my life what God would have had me do. Lately, I've been telling myself maybe it would be more appropriate to evaluate myself more realistically. Maybe I don't have the abilities or talents that I thought I had or that people over the years have assured me I had. And if that's so, then perhaps my expectations for myself should not have been so high. Maybe where I am now shows that I, in fact, got lucky to even get this far. While walking with Buckeye, I began thinking about where I put my time and my heart before my car crash in 2012. Before my crash in 2012, it was a bunch of things that had my full attention. My business, education. I was scattered, folks, every which way but loose trying to literally do nine different, totally unrelated things all at once. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes you find out that you can't do nine things all at once well. But you know, prior to 2012, I spent decades on trying to build a decent financial security for my family. And then in one moment, at 6.18 p.m., on a beautiful April 12th day, 2012, all that effort that I did, all those things that I worked for, became for naught. Yesterday, during all this thinking, you know, if you smelled any burning, it was probably the top of my head. All this thinking, it occurred to me yesterday, ever so proud father of a beautiful 24-year-old, and I mean beautiful human being, smart, funny, uh, just so intuitive, so intellectual, so uh, in touch with so many parts. She's got so many skills. 
hard to decide what she wants to do in life because she's so good at everything she's tried. This is my beautiful, beautiful daughter, Lily, 24 years old. And my 21-year-old, amazing, not just his head of hair, but amazing in his heart, wonderful, wonderful son, Doyle. So kind, so wonderful, so sweet, and so loving. You know, Doyle was my primary caregiver, as most of you know, after my crash. Now, Doyle, for the most part, had a big old, he had two major surgeries with pins and screws in his leg, and yet he took care of Dad. He cut all my food up for me, so small that it made it harder to choke. He checked on me every good bit to make sure that I was drinking enough fluid, and he made sure I wasn't choking on things, and he made sure I wasn't too hot or too cold. He looked after me, my kids. And you know what? As I was reflecting on them, I realized that nearly the majority of my adulthood has been spent as father. This made me think of two of my favorite entertainers, Mary Tyler Moore. Mary Tyler Moore, look, she was a huge star. We don't realize it nowadays how big a star she was, but the fact of the matter is she was huge. And despite being a huge entertainment success, her son committed suicide. Despite having a megastar as a mom and all of the opportunity bought by her fame and fortune, Mary Tyler Moore, her son decided that even that privilege of a life was not to him worth living anymore. My next favorite, actually my number one favorite, if I'm being honest, Carol Burnett. I absolutely loved Carol Burnett as a child. I'm going to be honest here, fully honest. I love her now. If she's ever on, I stay on that channel. It's too bad I miss out on so many other things because if she's on, her show's on. I can't help but to watch it. She just cracks me up. My favorite comedy show. Boy, did I admire her ability, her skill. But did you know that Carol Burnett's daughter had a lifelong battle with drugs and she died of lung and brain cancer and that authorities now believe were drug-related? Despite having access to the best schools, the best clothes, the best vacations, opulent homes, cars, the best counselors, the best doctors, her daughter committed suicide by drug-related lung and brain cancer. You probably know countless celebrities. You see them on television all the time. It's such a tragedy. You probably know them, well-to-do people who tragically lost their children to drugs and alcohol-related deaths, celebrities who achieved amazing things for themselves personally and in the world of entertainment, but they seemed to have failed with their children. You also know plenty of regular people who, despite their best efforts, their greatest love, their deepest love, their greatest sacrifices day in and day out, lost their children to drugs or suicide. Can you imagine suicide by your child? You gave them this beautiful and fragile life, and they don't want it. They threw it away. It's a curse that will not soon release the parent grieving the senseless loss of their child, whose first kick in their womb they felt and remember and treasure. Their first breath they saw and remember and treasure their first smile you reveled in. You remember their first smile as they looked up on you. You treasure it. You will never forget it. You store that smile away in your soul and it will never, ever fade. Their first words you heard 
The first steps you watched with angst and joy, you would come to know great joys and even greater angst, greater interminable sorrow. Parents in my audience live here now who all too well know intimately that sorrow. Many parents who've lost their child go through the second and probably 1,000th guessing. Did I work too much? Was I too strict? Was I too lenient? Was I too naive? Was I too suspicious? Did I spend too much time in my own head and not enough time connected to my child? So often we don't realize that the most important thing in your life was what you thought was the least important to your child. Until your children's stories are over, sometimes ended with crushing and life-sucking endless grief as it ruthlessly wrenches your heart and in the dark of yet another sorrow-filled night. You lay your head on your pillow and you stare at your ceiling again for yet another night and you feel that somehow you failed. Look, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have our children really for ourselves. We have our kids for ourselves. We think that having the children will add to our own life and that our children will make us better. They'll make us more fulfilled. And our children actually serve as a vicarious do-over, if you will, for our own lives. Our life experience or our children's lives make us whole in some way. Then the chain perpetuates. We begin with a dream for these pudgy little innocent babies, for them and for us. And then the story begins, and then the story ends. Sometimes that story ends messy, and in that messy end, we are shocked. We're rocked, and we are heartbroken. And you know what? Life is like that. Getting older is like that. I'm only 51 years old, and I already have escaped certain death many, many times. And I'm realizing now, more than ever, stories begin, stories end. The older you get, the more stories you experience. The more stories you accumulate, the more number of years between your beginning date. The larger the dash, the more stories you know. I've seen the whole story of my now deceased 52-year-old and very gifted brother, Dean. I've seen the story of his four amazing, beautiful, talented, patriotic children and his beautiful grandchildren. But Dean is gone at 52 years old, and such sorrow he left behind. So many tears and sadness because of a decades-long addiction to alcohol that ended with his egregiously untimely death. I'm seeing the potential end of the Lance story. My sweet next older brother, the story of his 40-plus year marriage to Lynette, to Lynette, who so beautifully and delicately now wipes his face, wipes it clean, puts lip balm on his lips, who holds his hand and implores him to wake up. Let's start this journey again. Let's get a do-over. Let's start this journey again, sober, healthy, and well. This is the story of his and Lynette's no matter what undying love, beginnings dreamt of, but now of this dark place realized, beautiful potential unrealized due to addiction. 
Lance's story right now is of his family coming each day to see him, talk to him, shaking him, tickling his feet, leaning over into his face and talking to him and imploring him, want to live, fight to live. We all love you. We're all fighting for you. We want you to live. We need you to live, to not give up, to live and start over at 58 years old, to give up to God what he has for decades gripped in his hand and what has had him in its death grip. We urge him to give all of his heart to God, cling harder to God than he does the alcohol. Cling harder to his Redeemer, his friend, his healer, Adonai, Elohim. None of the stories started with this as the ending they wanted or dreamt of. Nobody's story starts with sorrow. We don't start that story and say, you know how I'd like to end up is heartbroken. You know how I'd like to end up in a hospital bed with tubes down my throat and a line in my neck and people hovering over me, trying to keep me alive, praying a will and ability to fight. Praying that you hear a voice that says, hey, you know what? I want you to live. I love you. And that's spurring them on, that loved one on, to fight to live. Nobody dreams of that. None of the stories started with this. They were only feared in a quiet night. I'm seeing the end of the second half of my parents' story as my dear mother is now 86 years old. And this dear believer, talk about a hardcore woman of faith. She's already had to bury her second youngest child at the too early age of 52. My mother sees the stories of my family playing out now as she awaits her heavenly reward. You know, she cannot wait to see the face of Yeshua. When she prays, she prays as though he is sitting next to her holding her hand. Because he is. She sees the story and she worries for us. You know, my father died at 79 years old and one day. And he died after 79 years and one day full of regrets. He died in the arms of my now-dead 52-year-old brother, Dean, and they are buried next to one another in the same cemetery. My mother was with them in her own living room, right across where she sits now every single day, the living room where I grew up. She has her own significant health struggles, and every day she wonders, 86 and how much older? My brother Dean, her second youngest son, I was with her as she picked out the, just the right casket for him and making just the right arrangements to bury her second youngest child, me being the youngest child. Heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, so unnecessary. But you know what? Alcohol and, a, and addiction took my mother to that dark place. Choices took my mother to that dark place, none of which choices. Because of the actions and addictions of her second youngest son, she went to the darkest, most painful place 
she has ever been in her life. I delivered the sermon the day of my brother's funeral and the prayer at his graveside. And I knew, having talked to my brother not too many weeks before he died, I knew he was riddled in embarrassment. And well, he should. Alcohol and addiction took my brother's children to that place of loss and sorrow and finality. The idea, the thought, the terrifying notion of us living to bury any one of our children. The idea of me, I'll be real honest with you, the idea of me living to bury any one of my precious children, Lily and Doyle, it is an anguish that I pray to God I never have to experience. I implore my sweet children, do whatever it takes to live a healthful and full life. Do not put Daddy through this one pain that I am absolutely confident I will not survive. Even as my brother Lance lays in intensive care right now, the tubes and lines and things shoved down his throat, the feeding tube feeding him, all the intensive care people swarming over him. We don't know how much he knows, but maybe in his subconscious, maybe he feels that he's powerless to change, that his story is written in ink. His story is tattooed permanently on his life history's pages. And now as he lays mostly unconscious for nearly, I think, it's the 26th day, connected to a machine without which he would not live to see another beautiful sunrise and sunset like today. My dear, sweet, beautiful friend, Katrina, who every six weeks looked forward to me coming into her dental office and sitting in her little chair and her asking me how I was doing and what was going on and then her asking me all kinds of questions and laughing and smiling. Always began with a hug and ended with a hug. What a precious, precious, beautiful child. So smart. At only 23, people in her dental office, twice her age, would come to her and ask her how to do things. And she'd cheerfully and wonderfully, with such a great attitude, go and help them. She used to brag on her mom, who happens to be here tonight. She used to brag on her. She says, my mom is awesome. She's so dedicated. She's so fun. She's so involved. And she bragged on her brother. And so many, her both of her brothers, she bragged on them both. So many, so many people loved this child. And yet, Katrina repeatedly chose heroin. You'd never know it until the end. You'd never know it to look at her. Her own dear mother, despite all of her incredibly heroic efforts, and I mean heroic, what wouldn't you do 
to save your child from heroin. Whatever there was, she did. Whatever she had to sacrifice herself, she sacrificed. And yet, Katrina was late getting up for church one Sunday. I remember that day very vividly. So she went to check on Katrina in her bed. And she found her dear, sweet 23-year-old daughter and not one more day. She had passed from this life to the next at 23 years old. Crushing sadness. Unexplainable, inescapable sadness. The lyrics from this song, Jealous of the Angels. I don't know if you've ever heard this song, but I'm telling you, I had to pull my truck over when I heard it. These lyrics explain well what I'm trying to say in a much more artful way. I didn't know today would be our last or that I'd have to say goodbye to you so fast. I'm so numb, I can't feel anymore. Praying you'll just walk back through that door and tell me that I was only dreaming. You're not really gone as long as I believe. There will be another angel around the throne tonight. Your love lives on inside of me, and I will hold on tight. It's not my place to question. Only God knows why. I'm just jealous of the angels around the throne tonight. You always made my troubles feel so small, and you were always there to catch me when I'd fall. In a world where heroes come and go, well, God just took the only one I know. So I'll hold you close, as close as I can, longing for the day when I see your face again. But until then, God must need another angel around the throne tonight. Your love lives on inside of me, and I will hold on tight. It's not my place to question. Only God knows why. I'm just jealous of the angels around the throne tonight, singing hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm just jealous of the angels around the throne tonight. That song was written by Barrett Yeritsian, Jen Bostic and Jimmy Fortune and Zach Runquist. And I'm telling you, when you hear it sung and you watch, pull it up on YouTube and watch them sing this song, it is absolutely amazing. But you know what I've learned? It's hard for us to see our story while we're living it. And I'm preaching today about my own story. I'm preaching today about people's story, how God gives this life an ending so that we can see the stories. All of us. No one gets through life on this earth without some suffering. Because life is a contact sport. Some suffer more than others. And you know what? Many people I know very well and that I love have suffered far more than they ever should have. Far more than they should have ever suffered for as such good people as they are or were the ones that have passed while they were here on earth. Such good people. I think of Mama Max, who I've told so many stories about, all of them true, none of them embellished. If ever there was a saint on earth, if ever there was an angel that came to earth to visit, it was her. Never an unkind word. 
My buddy Eric, who's listening tonight, my dear friend, I say he's the coolest guy at Cape, class of 1983, easily the coolest dude I have ever met in my life. Since we were little, we were friends. He never smoked. He never did anything wrong. He never did anybody wrong. He never, he just was never unjust to anybody. He never was cross with anybody. He'd help anybody that needed anything. But now he's been fighting cancer and kidney failure for years. And he fights courageously every day. And you know what, Eric? Needs our prayers. My buddy Chris Cahalan, who's listening tonight with his family. After going through so much, the Whipple procedure and so many things, cancer is back. Pancreas cancer so hard. His family has been such a team. Team Cahalan. And now decisions about treatment need to be made. Chris needs our prayers. My friend, one of whom is here tonight, Don and Jerry and Angie, who's down in Florida, and Robert, my buddy Robert Rainey, has fought cancer himself. And Carson and so many people that don't deserve the pain or the struggle, but they've had huge challenges to hurdle. Listen, my friends need our prayers. But the truth of the matter is, we all need our prayers. Look, I've stood over the fatigued body of people breathing, literally, their last breaths on earth. And they were on the ground, in the dirt, on a dark roadside, uttering the last words their mangled bodies could manage to say. I've held the hands of the dying person who just moments before was the living person, partying, living it up, not a care in the world, unaware or uncaring maybe for their families at home who were worried about them, who were waiting for them to their watch or looking at the clock on the wall and hoping, come on now, walk through that door. Come on now, walk through that door. Their families were worried about them. Their families' worst fears ended up coming true. Those fears were brought about by that loved one's actions, by their choices. And they made their story one of agony and sorrow. Let me say this to our audience listening around the world. If you have a hurt, habit, or hang-up, whatever it is, that is a problem for you, your family, or your friends. If your family and friends are constantly coming to you, begging you, please get a handle on it. I'll go with you. I'll do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, I will go with you. If they're doing that, if your hurt habit or hang-up has brought you to a dark place, and has brought your family to you, begging you to get help, then get help. Don't wait to get a life. Get a life now. Let God help you. Be brave enough to let God help you. Let your family help you. Be brave enough to let your family help you. Let your friends help you. Be brave enough to let your friends help you. Stop living as though embarrassment is the worst thing you could experience, because let me tell you something. It took me months 
to come to grips with how Katrina died. And would you like to know why? Because the last two or three visits, now they're every six weeks, the last two or three visits, Katrina looked different. And I knew she looked different. And I gently said, honey, are you all right? And she says, oh, I'm fighting a little cold. I said, honey, you never have a jacket on. Oh, I'm a little chilly today. She looked different. And I knew that she looked different. And I let it lay right there. The last time I saw her alive, I said it just like this when I hugged her. I said, sweetheart, you're a bag of bones. You better eat. Oh, I eat. Well, if whatever's making you sick and you're still sick, this has been three visits now. That's 12 weeks. You need to care of yourself. Heroin. Do you know heroin is such an epidemic in Tennessee, the state of Tennessee, that the police have said, we have no idea what to do? And they've put the number, a number, a toll-free number on their police cars, on their ambulances, on every Tennessee vehicle, if you have any idea how to fix this heroin problem, call this number. Embarrassment. Sometimes people don't get help because they're embarrassed. You know, people don't, people don't end up an alcoholic for 45 years for nothing. There's some hurt habit or hang-up that drove them there. And you know what? Then choices become chances taken. And you know what? At some point, our second chances run out. At some point, our nine lives are exhausted, used up, over and out. Folks, if you're struggling with some sort of addiction, hurt, habit, or hang-up, no matter what it is, whatever you're addicted to, whether it's pornography, if you don't think pornography will kill you, you've got another thing coming. If you don't think being addicted to food will kill you, you've got another thing coming. If you don't think that being addicted to uh, perfection will kill you, if you don't think being addicted to anger, fear, anything just about can be an addiction. If you don't think it can kill you, you're wrong. Here's how you start. You acknowledge that you have hurts, habits, or hang-ups that are not only hurting you, but all of the people you love. Not only you, but the people that love you. And you know what? You have to be brave enough to do that. You know, it's not easy to stop drinking after 45 years of hard daily drinking, but do it. Do the hard work. Get close to God and do the hard work. Do the sweating. Feel the detox tremors before your liver is so shot that you can't fight back. Whatever pain led you to drink so much in the first place, whatever led pain led you to estrange your family and your friends, acknowledge that pain and deal with that pain, not at some point. Deal with it now. And let me tell you what. If you've been secretly putting a needle in your arm, believe me in this, do the hard work. Do the hard work. Feel the pain of kicking the habit once and for all and treat your family and your friends like they matter. Let me ask you something. If food is your drug, is that any less than heroin? If food is your drug, if cigarettes and poisoning your body with any means, but food is such a huge addiction. If food is your drug, get a handle on it and stop letting it ruin you and relationships 
that matter to you. If fear or anger is your drug, get a handle on it and stop letting it ruin you in relationships. Consequences. We all create consequences based on our poor decisions. Go get a life. Rewrite your story. Write a better ending. Read, then live the ending that God intended for you and go get a life. It doesn't happen automatically. Life is something you have to get. You have to go get. You have to live. You have to want to live. And live as though when God calls me home, I want my feet to be moving. I want my hands to be raised in praise, not in surrender. I want my mouth to be singing glory to God in the highest. I want my mouth to be praising God and singing of his goodness, his greatness, his power, to find how he brought me through the test because I was saved by the best. I want to be still in prayer. I want my story to be written well. Your story isn't over till it's over, folks. You can still write in that surprising plot twist. I lived like this for almost my whole life, and then I sought God. I trusted God, and He healed me once and for all. And then everything changed. You know, I'm going to tell you something. My father was an alcoholic my whole life. He was a hard man. Any of you have heard me speak of my dad before? Brilliant man, very smart, very hard worker, great provider. But my dad, for most of my life, was a mean alcoholic. Nice as could be the first 30, 40 minutes he started drinking. But you better get out of Dodge after that. You better go in hiding because it got bad after that. But my dad stopped drinking. When my mother got sick, my dad said, you know what? And he, got, he had some major surgery, had some major health issues right after he stopped drinking. And he kind of joked about it in the hospital. He says, man, I wasn't ever sick before this. Now I quit drinking, quit smoking. Look at me. I'm falling apart. But then he would always follow up and say, you know, I'm glad I did, though. I wish I'd have done it sooner. My mother's best friend, the last 15, 20 years of his life, he was my mother's best friend. And you know what else? He was my mother's best caregiver because she became very, very sick herself. But you know what I know about sad endings? No sad ending started out as a sad ending. Look at how you want your story to end and fix it. Change it. Don't wait because you don't know how much time you have. None of us do. We don't know how much time we have. We live with such arrogance within our bodies. And as we travel around, listen, at 6, 17, and 59 seconds on April 12, 2012, I think, I don't remember, but I think I might have been singing some song. And then in a flash, I do remember saying, uh-oh, as I swerved to the right, and that's it. Lights out. But I thought I had it in the bag, man. Appointment book full, plenty of clients. You know how it is with a business? You think, oh, here we are. That's that. That's that. I'm, I'm on the climb. I'm on the climb. We've stopped with all the building part, and she's starting to grow now. Finally starting to become what we thought it would be. And then in an instant, 
I couldn't work anymore. Don't wait until your family is heartbroken next to your hospital bed, crushing sorrow. Don't wait until the next needle stick will be your last and your mother has to find you with no more life in your body. Don't wait until your secret habitual eating has estranged your family and embarrassed you into unsurvivable habits. Don't allow the ending of your life to be the beginning of your family's endless sorrow. Make no mistake about it. There will indeed be an ending to your story. There will be an ending for every one of us, and it will either be the bitter end that we've always secretly dreaded, or it will be the peaceful victory in Jesus ending that we all dream of. But make no mistake, our end will come. We all end up with tears here on earth. I want, to rem- I want you to remember this. The reason God wipes away all of our tears, you know, he in Psalm 56, 9 expresses this so beautifully. You have kept account of my wanderings. You store my tears in your water skin. Aren't they already recorded in your book? God keeps account of your sorrows. He keeps them in a bottle. There's not a sorrow, a hurt, a habit, or hang-up that he doesn't care about. God is in heaven right now, and he will wipe away all of our tears. He will empty that water skin, that bottle filled with our tears, because when we arrive in heaven, we arrive with our tears, our tears we bring with us to heaven that wet our faces here on earth. Tears over the precious loved ones we lost tragically too soon. But here's the good news. We're still alive. Do you realize that? We are still alive. For now in this moment, we are still alive. We're here, and it's now, and we are most assuredly alive. We don't need a machine to breathe for us, and our lives are most often too short. So as my upcoming book's title reads, Go Get a Life. We, like our loved ones who left us too soon, seem to think we have forever to be and to live whatever God intended us to be. We're going to get around to it living what he wanted us to live, being how he wants us to be. We think we've got all kinds of time to do what God intended us for to do. Listen, life's too short to make our relationship with God a secret for only our church friends to know. You know what? It's easy to come to a place of worship, no matter where that is, and be all Christian-y. To speak of God's goodness, it's easy to do it here. But how about when you're outside of here? Life's too short to worry about what other people think about your faith in God. Life's too short to worry about what others think about how we dress, or we talk, or we live, because we are God's children and He is our God. Whether you're young or old, healthy or infirmed, rich or poor, married or single, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you are right now for the rest of your life. Go get a life. First Thessalonians 4.13, 5-24, I don't know how much I'll read, but now, brothers, we want you to know the truth about those who have died Otherwise, you might become sad the way other people who do not, who have nothing to hope for. Since we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, we also believe that in the same way God through Yeshua will take with him those who have died. When we say this, we base it on the Lord's own word. We who remain alive when the Lord comes will certainly not take precedence over those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a rousing cry, with a call from one of the ruling angels. And with God's shofar, those who died united with the Messiah will be the first to rise. 
then we who are left still alive. Oh, man. Then we who are left still alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So encourage each other with these words. Church, we need to start encouraging one another true words of the gospel with the true promises of God. We need to start encouraging one another and stop acting like there's some too embarrassing thing for us to share. If you can't share it here, then you can't share it anywhere. I don't mean airing your dirty linens in public. I mean being real with God and being real. There's a reason so many people can't be real with each other. It's because they're not real with themselves. And you know what? If you're not real with yourself, you're not real with God. We're not perfect. We're broken. Remember what I said about the garden. There was never death, sorrow. There was no sense of time in the garden. There didn't need to be an end to anything because God was walking with them. Things are perfect, but they aren't perfect now. But one day, oh, what a glorious day. They will be perfect again. Because when we meet the Lord in the air, we're going to be with him forever. But in the meantime, let's encourage one another. Chapter 5 says, but you have no need to have anything written to you, brothers, about the times and dates when this will happen, because you yourselves well know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is so peaceful and secure, I don't know anybody right now that's saying that anywhere in the world. I don't know anybody that's saying that. Everything is so peaceful and secure, then destruction will suddenly come upon them the way labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. There's no way they will escape. But you, brothers, You're not in the dark so that the day should take you by surprise like a thief, for you are all people who belong to the light. We need to start living like we belong to the light. If we've lost somebody to a hurt habit or hang-up, we can't die with them. You can't crawl in the casket as much as we want to sometimes. You can't do it. I know people in here have lost their parents, and you stand there, your parents' casket, and you want to climb in with them. You say there's no point in it. I know people... Personally, I have held their hand when their spouse is there, and you say, I've lived with this person for 50-some years. There's no point in me living. My own dear aunt and uncle, Billy and B, said at the family reunion in August before they died, which was in September, they said, uh, Billy, uh, Aunt B said, that really was her name, Aunt B. B said, well, Billy's not here. There's no point in me being here. And Billy kind of chuckled. He was playing guitar with my brother Lance in the yard. And he kind of chuckled and said, well, B, if you're not here, it might as well put me in the casket with you because I wouldn't know how to live without you. And you know what? The day before my daughter was born, we buried Billy and B. They died in each other's arms. He died of a heart attack while mowing his lawn, being hugged by Aunt B, who died of a broken heart. but you know what, I'm going to see them again. Who have died because of hurts, habits, we can't do it. We can't do it. We have to go on living. Life is to be lived. We have to go get a life. We have to stop hiding in our sorrow and our grief and realize that every moment is the last moment potentially. We are people who belong to the light. We're the people who belong to the day. We don't belong to the night or to darkness. So let's not be asleep like the rest are. On the contrary, let's stay alert and sober. People who sleep, sleep at night. People who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us stay sober, putting on trust and love as a breastplate and the hope of being delivered. 
as a helmet, for God has not intended that we should experience his fury, but that we should gain deliverance through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who died on our behalf, so that whether we are alive or dead, we may live along with him. Therefore, encourage each other. Ooh, here we go. Encourage. You know how hard it is to encourage and build each other up? Why does the church have such a hard time? You know, I understand conservatives and people on the right circular firing squad. I get that, but why the church? I don't understand that. I don't, we're the only ones that eat our own. We're the only moms that eat our own prey. We're the only siblings that eat our own prey. People come in, they say, I've got hurts, habits, and hang-ups. I'm broken. I need help. And you know what we do? Well, you're not wearing the right thing. Your hair's not right. Certainly, I heard some words come out of your mouth. that They're not church words. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? We're told here to encourage one another, to build each other up. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who are working hard among you, those who are guiding you in the Lord and confronting you in order to help you change. Treat them with the highest regard and love because of the work they're doing. Live at peace among yourselves. So many of us, you know, so many of us, we live in such turmoil, inner turmoil. Whatever is causing you turmoil in your life, change it. Go get a life. Go get the life you're supposed to have. Stop living as though that turmoil must rule you. It may be the toughest decision you've ever made to eliminate toxic relationships. It may be the toughest thing you've ever done to step away from someone who is poisoning your life. It may be the toughest thing you've ever done to step away from the sorrow and grief of losing someone you so dearly loved. But you have to do it. We're to encourage the timid, to assist the weak, patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil for evil. On the contrary, always try to do good to each other, indeed to everyone. Always be joyful. Pray regularly. And everything give thanks, for this is what God wants from you who are united with Messiah Yeshua. Don't quench the Spirit. I'm going to say one thing about that. Maybe two or five. Folks, the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, is real. It's not some fantasy thing. Folks, folks, don't live another day believing that the Holy Spirit of the living God cannot and does not and will not come upon you and fill you. But the Holy Spirit is only an invited guest. Guest everything. Hold on to what is good, but keep away from every form of evil. May the God of Shalom make you completely holy. May your entire spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. The one calling you is faithful, and he will do it. Why not live our lives so that when we die, when we breathe our last, our families and friends left behind us, they're jealous of the angels. Man. Look at who the angels get to be with now. Look at the life they live. Joy. Man, I don't know that I ever did look at Jerry and not see a smile. I don't know that I ever looked at Gloria and didn't see a smile. I don't know that I ever looked, heard them humming a song. Yeah, they suffered. Yeah, they had sorrow. Yeah, they had troubles. But they had joy in the Lord. Pain. Trial. Sorrow. That's an absolute thing in our life. We're going to experience it. Remember what I said? It's a contact sport. Why not? Why not live your life so that you make 
your friends and your family jealous of the angels? Oh, look, look. They get to have my dear, sweet Katrina. They get to have my dear, sweet George. They get to have my dear, sweet friend, my dear, sweet husband, my dear, sweet wife, my brother, my mother. Let me tell you something. The day my mother dies is going to be a very, very hard day, hard, hard day. I learned about faith from my mom. But you know what? Here's what I know. <laughs> my mom lived and is living a full life. I'd love to see her go to the – I'm always on her about going to the senior center. I said, Mom, you ought to go to the senior center. Well, they'd love you over there all the stuff you do and know how to do and just so peaceful and friendly and sweet and love of Jesus just comes out of you, you should just go there. But she's afraid of the germs because she's, she's had, uh, you know, some serious, serious health problems. She has no immune system. But, boy, wouldn't that be something. But I know this. When she sees Yeshua's face, it won't be for the first time because she's prayed and she's imagined and she's, meditated upon the face of Jesus. That's the life she wants to have. Life will not force itself upon you. God won't force life upon you. You have to go get a life. And the time to do that is tonight. The time to do that is right now. Do not wait. Don't wait another day. Because life is passing you by. And you know what you don't know? You don't know when it's too late to go get a life. 